Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Hannah Kent's first novel, the international bestseller Burial Rites, was translated into over 30 languages and won many awards. Her second novel, The Good People, received similar acclaim. In today's episode, we are thrilled to have Hannah Kent talking about her third novel, Devotion. This long-awaited novel demonstrates Hannah Kent's sublime ability with language that creates an immersive, transformative experience for the reader. Devotion is a book to savour. Described as a heart-wrenching love story, the novel centres on Hannah Nussbaum, a child of nature. She would rather run wild in the forest than conform to the limitations of womanhood. In her village of Kay, Hannah is friendless and considered an oddity, until she meets Taya. Hannah Kent will be in conversation with Reading's own Mark Ruber. Before we start, a quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Reading's programming manager, Chris Gordon. Hello, my name is Christine Gordon, and I'm the programming manager for Readings, and it's my role just to say hello and make yourself as comfortable as possible. On behalf of Macmillan and on behalf of Readings, we are delighted to have you here with us tonight. Before I get into introducing one of my dearest colleagues, the great leader of the Readings Bookshops, I want us just to take a little moment out of our busy days to reflect that wherever we are in Australia, whatever lounge room we're sitting on, whatever kitchen table we're around, whatever porch we're on, we're living, of course, on land that's not ours, on land that's not been ceded. I've been doing lots of these acknowledgements of country and I know that it's my role to pay my respects on behalf of all of you in the audience to their elders, past, present and emerging. But I'm starting to really believe in my heart that that's actually not enough. It's not enough just to say I acknowledge that this land is not mine. It's not enough to say I'm sending my respects. I reckon we've also got to make a commitment to learn some of the stories and the song lines that the First Nations people have given us. We're all readers, so it makes perfect sense that we would seek out those truths. So on behalf of you all here, I'd like to say hello. I'd like to send my respects and indeed my gratitude to the First Nations people. I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation, and wherever you are in Australia, I know that you will make that commitment to share in our heritage, share in our history. And, of course, there's some people that are going one step further than that, and that is even Mark Rubo, who sits on the board of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, who has always shown through his work and through his Readings Foundation a great commitment to learning more about our First Nations people and supporting them in any way that he can. It's so inspiring to work for someone like Mark in that sense, someone who not only walks the walk but also talks it. I'm delighted to introduce you to the Managing Director of Readings. I'm delighted to introduce you to truly one of the loveliest men in Australia. Over to you, Mark. Uh, well, thank you, Chris. That's, uh, you're too kind, too kind. We're not here tonight to talk about me or anything else. We're here to celebrate this wonderful new book by Hannah Kent, Devotion. 
Uh, you're here because you love Hannah's works. You're here because you're intrigued to hear about her new book that was only published yesterday, so it's very exciting. It's really fresh. As you know, Hannah has written two marvellous previous books, um, Burial Rights and The Good People, Devotion is a Third. Some of you may not know that Hannah and her friend Rebecca Stafford founded Kill Your Darlings in 2010. Kill Your Darlings is a, was a print literary magazine that published, its aim was to publish good writing by new and established Australian writers to give um, new writers a chance to air their works, if you will, next to established writers. So to get audiences both of those. So Kill Your Darlings has had a huge huge influence on the Australian writing scene. And I think we need to acknowledge um, the courage and the fortitude and the great idea that Rebecca and uh, Hannah had at that time. Obviously now Hannah has got a much busier career. Um, she's a full-time writer and a mother, so she probably doesn't have that much time to devote to Kill Your Darlings, but it's still going. It's still online. Uh, you can Google it and have a look and see what they're doing. I remember really, really vividly uh, when Burial Rights came out in early 2013. It seemed to come from nowhere and it progressively went on to win hearts and minds of people around the world as it went into numerous editions in numerous languages. So, Hannah, welcome and thank you so much for giving your time to us tonight. I remember meeting you at a book expo in New York um, at the American Booksellers Association function where they were touting burial rights as the next big thing. What was it like to suddenly become famous on a, on a world stage at that time? And you were relatively young at the time too. I was. First of all, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for, for coming tonight. Thank you for having me. I'm talking to you from Paramount Country. Hello, Mark. Um, I feel, Mark, then I should begin by apologising because I actually don't remember meeting you. In fact, I don't really remember any of that trip to the US because I think I've just blacked out from all the nervous energy I had at the time. I was incredibly nervous about the whole thing, mainly I think because so much of burial rights happened. Like you said, it seems to come out of nowhere. It was a book that I'd been working on as part of a PhD thesis and, of course, something that meant a great deal to me, but I had always assumed that it would be read by two examiners and, you know, probably my parents, definitely my mum, maybe my dad. And so for it to sort of initially win an unpublished manuscript award, but for then for everything else to happen, publication and so forth, was something that I had never anticipated, something that I probably hadn't even dreamt of. I knew that maybe one day I'd like to try and get the book published, but it wasn't something that I thought would, you know, come in the next 10 years. So, yeah, it, it's to be honest, it still is something that I pinch myself over. But of course, it's something that I'm immensely grateful for because it, it has been such a pleasure to speak with readers and to to hear from them what the book means to them and the different ways that they read into the text and have connected with those characters. And you know, of course, being set in Iceland, a place, a country which is very dear to my heart and has a lot of personal significance for me, it's been yeah an ongoing real pleasure really to to continue to connect with people about that landscape as well so but it was a weird start Mark and yeah again yes. I'm sorry I don't remember meeting you <laughs> I remember right. meeting you again outside of readings but the first time I think I was probably just you know shaking <laughs> with terror so yeah no that's that's fine I suppose going on from that sort of to have had so much success for the first book I can't imagine what it must feel like for a writer then to say because everyone's expecting 
the next one to be, or they're going to be so looking at it with such forensic eyes. Is she really good or is she just a one one pot wonder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. If I had a dollar for every time, probably a very well-meaning friend had said, oh, second album syndrome, how are you going to avoid it? <laughs> Again, I mean, it's been a very positive, you know, 10 years or so, Mark, but I, I, I was. there's also been some very anxious moments in that 10 years. And I do remember when Burial Rats was out there and it sort of months passed, I was touring quite extensively with that book, both here and overseas, a couple of times. And then, you know, the time came that I really needed to start focusing on my next novel. And I knew what it was going to be. I had signed a second book contract. I'd already pitched it to the publishers. Um, I knew that there was this, again, a real-life case from the southwest of Ireland that had piqued my interest that I wanted to research and had been researching concurrently with Turing. But now was the time to sort of, you know, start typing again. I think there was probably a period of about a month or so where I really struggled to begin writing in a, in a very serious way. And I think a lot of that did come from an awareness now that there would probably be some people who would read this book. Whereas with the first one, I think I'd had, there's a certain liberty that can come when you don't expect a readership. You know, so much of that book I wrote for myself or I wrote out of my own interest. Now I was aware, like you say, of people that people would be a little bit more forensic, that they would be perhaps a little bit more critical. And that was really stifling for me initially, um, having too much concern about that. And so the only way I was able to eventually write that book was by setting it aside and, and thinking, okay, you're just you're just going to have to tell the story in the way that you want to do it. You're going to have to try and return to what you what drives you most as a writer, and that is the love of writing itself, just to come back to practice, come back to trusting the process that you know, you might be hating your first or second or third draft, but eventually with enough time and, and diligence and discipline and rewriting, you'll you'll get it to where you need to be. So, yeah, a combination of setting that aside and, yeah, trusting the process. But, yeah, it was. A, I think my fears were very real there for quite some time. Well, devotion is a departure from the first two books because it's not, although it's historical, it's the characters of pure fiction. They're not real people based on a real community, as we'll probably talk. What was so refreshing to me was it's a love story, basically. It's a love story, and it's about two young women, Hannah and Thea. So it's a sort of, it's a radical, well, not so radical, now a radical love story, especially for that time. How did the inspiration for this come? Because it wasn't based on on an incident that you'd stumbled upon, was it? No, it wasn't. I, I think there were a few things which really pushed me towards writing it. I think the first was that I was ready to to do something different. I think Burial Rights and The Good People were quite similar in that they were both based on people accused of very serious crimes. There was this judicial element to both of them. I had applied this very sort of strict research methodology whereby anything that I was going to fictionalise still had to be anchored to some sort of more general research or understanding of the time and place and social milieu. And I'd really enjoyed that for those books, but I was aware that if I kind of did the same, I was going to paint myself into a corner as a writer. And I think the the joy, I was, I was worried about losing the joy of writing if I felt that I had somehow worked myself into a kind of formulaic book whereby I just plucked someone accused of murder from the past and <laughs> tried to write the story from their perspective. So on one hand, I was really keen not to do that again. I wanted to focus on something else. And initially I thought I wanted to write about friendship. And the reason why I wanted to write about friendship 
is because my other books, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of them and I'm glad I wrote them, but they are, you know, the subject matter is quite bleak. It can be quite grim. The settings were quite grim and wintry and, you know, I'm so sorry, by the way, if you can hear my cat meowing in the background. That's your cat. That's my cat. And she's she's very elderly and she has dementia, so she doesn't, sometimes she meows because she doesn't know where she is. But she's fine, oh. I promise you. But, yeah, apologies for that interruption. Um, where was I? I was ready, I think, to move back into the light. And by that I didn't necessarily want to start writing about something I considered more superficial. But I wanted to celebrate something rather than to sort of, you know, interrogate a very sort of grievous part of history. And so that's why initially I thought I want to write about friendship. And along with moving out of those sort of northern landscapes, I I had been toying with the idea of setting something in Australia, mainly because I really wanted to celebrate it. I also thought it would be challenging. I grew up on Paramount Country in the Adelaide Hills. I live here now. And I've always been fascinated by the very strong Germanic influence uh, because I've growing up next to towns like Harndorf, next to regions like the Barossa, you always are sort of aware that, you, you know, sort of the vague outlines of the narrative of the 19th century emigration of persecuted old Lutheran Prussians who came here and sort of brought their viticulture, brought their food cultures. There's a lot of Germanic sort of phrases in South Australian idioms which are influenced by it. And actually, it was when I was living in Melbourne and, you know, was talking about things like Fritz and delis and no one knew what I was talking about that I thought, I don't think people are as aware of this historical sort of background. And so I started to toy with the idea. I was always really fascinated, too, with the the women who came out. There's occasionally another controversy every time they put up a memorial at this local tourist town, this Germanic tourist town nearby where I live, because it's always about the men and the women are always left out. And I've always wondered about the women because I'm related to the, the Germans which who came out and uh, on my grandmother's side. And she was this very interesting woman, uh, had an incredible work ethic. She was incredibly humble. And uh, I always wondered about whether or not the women who came out resembled her in their sort of values base. And I thought, well, what would have been so important to them? Surely they would have formed these incredible friendships. And I thought initially I want to I want to try and discover something more of these friendships between these Prussian women just to really see if there's a novel there. There might not be anything. And as I continued to sort of do some research and do some reading and sort of just kind of dance around the whole idea. Uh, It was around 2017, so a year after The Good People had come out, and uh, a few things happened which made me change my mind about writing a book about friendship. And probably the most significant of those was the same-sex plebiscite which occurred, mainly because it completely affected my personal life. My girlfriend proposed to me on the same day that Australia said yes, and we were married soon after. And so... I think those events, I'd also read an incredible book called The Ghost Wife by Michelle Dichonoski about, which was written in a time when Australia did not have same-sex marriage. And it was about how she felt largely invisible having married her wife in the US. And there was this beautiful part of the book I remembered reading where she talked about female relationships, female queer relationships in history as being sort of present in the silences and absences of the historical record. And so it was these sort of things that made me think, well, talking to myself, I have always been drawn to the silences and the absences in the historical narrative. Those are the things which make me ask questions and I think questions are always what drive at least my novels, personally speaking. 
And so I thought, well, initially I was a little bit reluctant because I didn't really see a way into writing a queer relationship within this particular historical context. You know, we're talking about a very pious old Lutheran congregation, which doesn't even permit dancing. And I thought, well, maybe I can write about two friends who are actually in love with each other, but they don't really know it. And I sort of toyed with that and I was writing some early writings and early drafts. And in the end, I just gave up in frustration because I I realised that there was no way around doing this and honouring the, his, you know, the historical time, the historical attitudes, ensuring that the historical context was correct and not writing an art, a narrative of shame or ignorance or self-repression. And I thought, I, as a queer person, I'm sick of those narratives. I know there's a place for them, but I don't want to read anything like that. I want to write a book where these characters know that they are in love with one another and that there is no shame. And so that really led me to, it gave me a lot more clarity, I think, and it changed the form of the novel. It changed the narrative of the novel. It changed the characters. And it also changed the way in which I decided to approach it, creatively speaking. It allowed me to loosen even more of those shackles. Yeah, so that was quite transformative that year and just deciding that, no, this is going to be a queer love story, but it's going to be a positive one. It's going to be a celebration of this relationship and nothing else. It's a book. It's, you know, you need drama. You have to have a few bad things for the drama. The other thing, it's it's also very much about community and about tensions within communities and families. So this Lutheran sect, uh, you said they're very strict uh, and pious. One thing they do like to do is drink, which I I think that's the one redeeming feature. (laughs) (laughs) We owe a lot to their drinking habits, it's true. Um, Tell us about them and how they play in the book. I can tell you a little bit about the novel and where it opens. It's narrated by a young girl, Hannah, a teenager at the novel's opening. She is the daughter of an, an old Lutheran elder and her father has been persecuted like many other men in his community for not adhering to the new liturgies and practices prescribed by the new Union Church. King Friedrich Wilhelm III tried to unify all the Protestant churches and many eventually dissented. Initially it was optional and then gradually those options became, no, 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 this this is something that everyone needs to do. And those who resisted, those who dissented, became no, started to be called old Lutherans. The pastors were removed from office and had to flee. Many people were fined. Many people lost many of their personal belongings in an effort to pay the fines. Lots were imprisoned. And so Hannah is the daughter of one of these men who is now in a stronghold. The village they live in is a stronghold of these dissenters, these old Lutherans. And they're, they're in a quite a precarious position because because not only have they been forced to hold services within the forest nearby the village uh, under fear of further sort of recrimination, they're also running out of money because of continual fines. They're finding their freedoms increasingly limited. Uh, and so they are in communication with their pastor who is in hiding, who has been travelling around trying to find some way to enable emigration where they might be able to practise their religion as they would like uh, in freedom. And so Hannah is the daughter of one of the elders at the centre of this community and their and their desire to leave this village. 
she herself is not particularly concerned at the novel's opening with all these events because she is caught up in her own personal problems. She's someone who is a great lover of outdoors. She has this sort of synesthesia, which means that she hears the landscape around her. And so she has a very strong connection to it, uh, a very strong spiritual connection to nature and the landscape. So in some ways, her relationship to the religious practices of her family and the broader congregation are sort of set off by this other sort of spirituality that she fosters and loves. But when the book opens, she is being sternly sort of shepherded back into the fold, as it were, and being prepared, especially by her mother, for the social roles, the really the only social role which is going to be open to her as a young woman, which is to be a wife and a mother. And so that's sort of where the novel opens. But uh, eventually these particular communities were offered financial assistance by the South Australian colonist, George Fife Angus, who provided essentially a loan uh, to allow them to emigrate. And so uh, another part of the book and what they eventually do is, is sail to South Australia. And there they try to set up their own communities uh, to try and not necessarily dissipate amongst the English who have already arrived in South Australia, but to sort of remain a closed community. And the voyage out, which this is in the early 19th century, so it sails. So it takes a very, very long time, and that's quite a big section of the book, and lots of things happen during that voyage. I, I just loved that description. It was very um, sort of C.S. Forrest or <laughs> the waves and the privations, the scurvy, the scurvy and the terrible food. I just loved your ability to... To make it so vivid, I guess that's where you were able to do in your earlier books to create this world that was very believable and you felt you inhabited it. How do you go about bringing that off and so convincingly, to my, to my mind? So I did lean on historical sources for that journey because I've I've never been in a you know in a ship <laughs> like that. I've I have no idea what it would be like. So I tried to. I ended up actually finding the journals of Dirk Hahn, who was a Danish captain of the ship Zebra, who ended up bringing about 200 of these Prussians over in sort of 1838, 1839. Initially, I was reading the journals really just to get a grasp of what the ship might have looked like, the sort of different parts of it, what his day was like. And he's just complaining about a chronometer, which is sort of a maritime instrument, which isn't as yeah. accurate as he would like it to be. But occasionally he would mention the emigrants on his ship and he would talk about how they sang every morning and evening and how they seemed a very pious group but were quite orderly and paints them in almost a, a suspiciously positive light um, considering the hardships of the journey, which you at this stage in the journals assume there were. He mentions occasionally having to, you know, people occasionally dying but doesn't really specify what of. But then you get to the end of these journals and here he says, essentially, I'm going to paraphrase it, he essentially says, I have spoken of the emigrants. I perhaps did not essentially tell the entire truth. And then he goes on to list a whole barrage of conflicts and arguments and problems that occurred on the journey and the reason he does this uh, <laughs> is because he 
is worried once they reach port that some of these complaints and ongoing conflicts amongst the passengers and between the passengers and the ship's surgeon are going to go to court and he's going to need to testify. So he's quite meticulous in documenting exactly what goes on. (laughs) And so you can imagine my reaction, you know, looking for, you know, the human face of these sorts of journeys. Suddenly I'm hearing about an incompetent doctor who's adulterating his powdered medicines with, you know, ground up glass, either out of, you know, negligence or sort of, you know, evil you're hearing about the doctor messing up the rations and forcing everyone to eat salted herrings when they're going through the tropics but then they're so thirsty so he decides to open up some of the extra water barrels but of course someone made the mistake of putting the water not in fresh barrels but old whiskey barrels so the water's essentially you know stinks and tastes awful and then everyone gets sick and he just goes on and people are fighting at one stage there's two families which are holding services at different times because they can't bear to be in each other's company Uh, the beds collapse all this sort of incredible drama occurs and I was just like oh okay I just gotta start making notes so when I came to I I leaned hard on that resource And the reason I did that and I felt quite happy to do so was also because I was aware that this journey would have been pretty miserable. Lots of other sources that I was looking at had sort of mentioned that these journeys were horrible but didn't really specify in what way. And I was reluctant to invent prolonged suffering because, one, I didn't want to get it wrong, but also, two, I think it can be problematic when you invent suffering for the sake of entertainment. I didn't want to do that. I thought if I'm going to write about the hardships of this journey, I want to make sure that they reflect actual things that happened. And so, yeah, a lot of the ship's journey, which is in the book, and there's quite a lot because it's a, it leads to quite a few cataclysmic events for the main characters. I was quite content to, to lean on those journals and to draw from them. But a lot of it also was an imagination. In fact, there's a fantastic maritime museum in South Australia and uh, I remember I had this great day where I went there with my, you know, then 18-month-old and they have created essentially the very old wooden bunks, the, the sort of bottom and top bunks that were built into the sort of the tween decks of these ships. And you can crawl, they're tiny, and they've created the mattresses and the pillows that would have been issued. And you're lying in these very uncomfortable, very narrow beds, knowing that there was at least two of you in each of one. And they've like simulated the sounds, you know, the boards creaking <laughs> and the wind whistling. And I remember lying there with my toddler just thinking, oh my gosh, I am so glad. I'm so glad I did not have to do this for six months. So, you know, it's it's wonderful to be able to have those things to tap into and to draw from. But a lot of it too is, you know, just just imagination and, and, and looking at the ways in which you can use these interesting historical facts to better illustrate the journey of your characters. It always has to come back to character in the end. And it's interesting because the privations sort of bring to boil some of the tensions within the community. Thea's mother, Anna Maria, is a healer and also a bit of an outsider. There's people who don't like her. So there's this tension that builds up there, isn't there, that, that goes throughout the rest of the book. Yeah, and this was something else which I got from reading about this time. To, to give you an idea, Hannah, again, at the beginning of the novel, just as she is sort of being forced to stay indoors all the time and to sort of assume the role that she thinks she's going to have to do, cooking and cleaning a lot of domestic chores, she's also aware that she's she's not really like other girls in the village. She doesn't really know how to do what is expected of her. She's continually sort of upsetting and frustrating her parents. She doesn't really have any friends. And she's both, you know, desirous of ongoing solitude, but as she gets older, also 
you know, wanting to be seen and accepted for who she is, you know. There's an arrival of a new family to this small village of dissenters and the reason they've come is because they're able to afford a very small forester's cottage near the, near the forest. They're having already sold most of their belongings in anticipation of emigrating years before when their passports were denied to them by the king. They're in poverty and that's reason for some suspicion. But the woman particularly of this family, the, the mother of Taya, who is their only daughter, She's a Vend, and Vends are now more commonly referred to as Sorbs, and they were a Slavic minority who existed in Prussia around this time. And they were suspected or by many communities because although they often too were dissenters and, and practices of essentially an old Lutheran faith, they were regarded as being more superstitious or holding belief in other things that perhaps they ought, that were not perceived to be Christian by others. And so the mother of Thea, Anna Maria, is one of these Vens. She is married into a German family. And so the family is accepted because of the, the father and also the fact that they have been persecuted like everyone else. But people are a little bit wary of her because she's purported to have sort of a supernatural sixth sense. She's a midwife. She's comfortable using herbal remedies. And it's also rumoured that she is in possession of a grimoire, the sixth and seventh books of Moses, which is something that I kept coming across in my research and is essentially, it was a real text that existed, two apocryphal texts that were supposed to have been dictated to Moses on Mount Sinai by God. And the seventh book is essentially a, a herbal book full of herbal remedies. The sixth book, and probably the more the reason why people used to be a bit worried about this grimoire, is largely to do with, you know, things like demon invocation and it has a conversation with Satan in it and how do you, you know, raise people out of the grave. So so this book and Anna Maria come to play quite a large part, especially when when they're all on the ship and they have nowhere to go and they're all thrust into one each other's company. There is a lot of tragedy in the book. People die and they aren't fulfilled. As you were referring to, I did find it in many ways very optimistic and, and even joyous at times. Is that how you want people to read the book? Yeah, I absolutely. I think, you know, I think if you're ever writing about the historical past and, you know, you're looking at an entire community, I mean, just look at the statistics for something like, I don't know, infant mortality. You know that people had, you know, they were familiar with grief. There were many things which we thankfully now do not have to go through. Uh, but in the past it was a very different matter, especially when it comes to health and things like that. And so inevitably, I think when you're writing historical fiction, if you want to honour the past, you need to include some of those things which happened. But I do see the book as joyous because the focus throughout is absolutely on, well, essentially devotion, on, mm-hmm. on love between, between obviously the two central characters, but also the other ways that people express devotion and express love, whether that's through community, whether that's deep connection with country, uh, with the land, with nature, whether it's love of God or however you perceive God to be in many manifestations. So for the Lutherans, it's very much the, the, the Bible's God. But for many other characters, they find spiritual fulfilment in other ways in this very sort of joyous sense, I think. I think so much of this book, as much as, it is, as you know, we've been talking a great deal about it being situated in these particular years and these particular communities, you know, the locale is particularly parochial and specific. There's so much in the book, I think, which also considers that which exists 
outside of time, you know, that which is universal and that which persists in spite of everything which goes on. And so I would really hope that readers find that to be the case with this book. I think I would really hope that people feel uplifted by it. I felt uplifted writing it. And there was a lot that I sought to celebrate, you know, on a personal level too by writing it. So I hope I hope people find that, that the case. Yes, I, I find also the relationship that Hannah has with her parents is quite different to the relationship that Tia has with her parents. And they're quite complex. And initially, Hannah's parents are quite cold and strict. But they also, you discover as the book goes on, that they have a deep love and affection for their children. They just can't express it, whereas Anna Maria can and Thea's father can too. Mm. And that sort of strikes Hannah, doesn't it, when she first meets the family? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember reading, read quite a lot of personal histories and diaries when I was writing this book. And I was really struck by someone who was raised in the Barossa commenting, he, he was sort of talking about, surely the deep affection that existed between his parents. They had, you know, 14 kids or something. But there was a a line where he said, I never saw them touch. And I was just sort of blown away by that. And I sort of was considering how to to essentially portray these two parents who, who are absolutely subservient to the church. You know, the church is is everything in their lives. It is the main culture. They continue to sort of run around and, and, you know, not only is it part of their belief system, but it is also very much the way in which they, you know, order their working day and the way in which they just live life. And these people, of course, have a great amount of affection for their children, but I was started to think how, how would it be to be a young child who is a, you know, Hannah is quite a, She's a sensitive person. She's also quite a sensual person. And I think she has this need for physical acknowledgement, a physical touch from her parents that she doesn't receive. And I think this is heightened because in the book she actually has a twin, um, Matthias, who she's very, very close to, particularly when she's younger, that she's always getting out of bed and climbing in with him. And then there comes a time where her mother finds her there and is sort of horrified and completely misreads the situation and forbids her from, from, you know, sleeping in the same bed as her brother. And also this is coming at the same time when the very much the gendered labour of this community is pushing these two people apart. So I was really interested in contrasting that with Taya's family who are much more... You know, they Anna Maria the Vend is a, a fantastic cook, and they really love food, and they sort of raise an eyebrow when they hear that the congregation doesn't dance, and they're just a little bit more liberated within themselves, and also much more aware of the body. And of course, this then becomes something which is hugely attractive for for Hannah to be to be sort of in this environment where she doesn't feel apologetic for for being physically, you know, she's she's hungry for affection essentially and she receives it in this family. And it's, a, it's interesting when they arrive in, in Adelaide, which at that time I think people used to refer to Port of Adelaide as Port Misery. Yeah, yeah true story. Yeah, it sounds um, awful again. <laughs> I'm really doing a great sale of this book. I promise you that it's not just about miserable ships and ports. But, yeah, it received that nickname mainly because it was marshland and very tide dependent and inevitably before they sort of put structures in place, there was a lot of sort of wading through, you know, mud flats and things like that. And there was also no fresh water at the port. Um, So, yeah, that was something that I felt I ought to to mention. And then the the immigrants say they make their way inland to they've got a plot 
an area of land that they can move to. And I was particularly interested, they start to encounter the, the local people. I thought some of the, the way you handled that was very beautiful and very respectful. Obviously, this book is not about those encounters. Uh, it's about this love and this other community. How, how did you decide how you talk about the Indigenous people in your book? It was definitely front and centre in my mind. For many years, I was reluctant to write about, to set a historical, a work of historical fiction in Australia because I didn't know how I could do so without essentially adopting the mindset of characters who lived in that time. I knew that I was never going to write any sort of narrative from the perspective of an Aboriginal character. I'm not Indigenous myself. I do not feel that that is by any means my place to take up that room to to tell those stories that is that is not that is not for me to do there are many other people who are doing that and have a right to that to those stories so i knew that if i was going to to set something in colonial australia i was going to have to do it from the perspective or to privilege the perspective of of white people the oppressors and and I knew that, again, to be historically accurate, I was going to have to write out of the racism and the prejudice and all these awful things that I find abhorrent. And the whole idea of it seemed completely abhorrent to me. It was not something that I wanted to do. Also, I think there's a real danger when you're writing about the historical past as a novelist to, I think, whether or not you intend it, sometimes you can um, your writing can somehow celebrate or fetishize the past, and I didn't want to do that with Australia's colonial history because it's important to to look at our history and to interrogate it and to see what we can do now to counter the huge amount of devastation um, that you know the colonizing process has caused. Um, but I, yeah, I just didn't know how I was going to be able to do it, basically. And I had no desire to, of course, adopt those sorts of opinions through character. It wasn't going to be representative of any sort of story that I wanted to tell as a writer. I think I found, I, I basically decided to write this book. It was around the same time that I also was considering how to write about a queer love story without it becoming a narrative of shame because of its historical context. And so I, I felt that I found a way to do that um, by making some creative risks, which is probably one of the, the main reason why this book departs um, from my previous two. And I'm, I'm pleased with them and I hope that readers, um, you know, trust me in the things that I have done in this book to allow the characters to not necessarily adopt those same opinions that we know would have been rife amongst those communities. At the same time, there's also many accounts of the real-life engagement and conversations and things that happen between the Prussian community and the Paramount community, particularly in Handorf, which I live very close by and which I've based a lot of this book on. You know, there's, there's lots of accounts of um, there being lots of really friendly and supportive interactions, mainly the Paramount being incredibly generous to the Prussians who soon ran out of the leftover ship's rations and were starving and was dealing with ongoing issues from scurvy and so on. I know that the Paramount uh, showed them ways to source local food. They also showed them a lot of the local pathways that they used. Um, and I wanted to include that in the book because it's, a, it's I think, illustrative of, the, of a different kind of relationship that perhaps did exist. But at the same time, I'm also aware that all these reports and accounts are written by white people. So, you know, who's to say that that's exactly what happened? And so I have included 
also some of the other things that I know happened between these communities uh, in the book. I was also really, really fortunate to speak to um, Elder Aunt Mandy Brown, who is a Paramount Elder here, and um, I really benefited from our chats and um, she had some great insight too about some of the, um, the ways in which I could incorporate the Paramount and my representation of these people into in these communities in in those sort of creative risks that I was taking. So, yeah, it was not something that I took lightly, but um, nevertheless really enjoyed writing. Oh, well, I think you really pulled it off. It was, did it so successfully and respectfully too, I think. I hope so. I have to say, Anna, I just love this book. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I'm glad to hear it. I just um, it was a joy and a pleasure to read and a real page turner too. Um, oh, good. Do you think you could give us a little bit of a taste? Yeah, I, I'll read a bit. I, I might read a bit sort of which which is actually once they've sort of reached South Australia, you know, one thing that I really loved exploring is the, the different relationship Hannah has to the Australian landscape, which is unlike anything she's seen before. Um, and there was such, I was initially worried about, you know, um, have, being too familiar with the Australian landscape, the Australian bush, to to write it accurately. I thought maybe I, I'd, I wouldn't have enough clarity. But in the end, actually, I really, it was some of my favourite writing in the whole process because it, I felt that I could indulge my great love of, of the Australian bush. Um, and so this is a section where the congregation is moving up across the plains uh, where Adelaide now is, um, across Ghana land, up into the ranges, which is Paramount country. The sound of this country is one long sustained note that does not end. It is a humming that holds all the other music of this place in harmony. Every other sound is threaded upon it. It was at the port that I began to curate new litanies. Between the bullock drivers that rumbled in from Adelaide, the sailors, the merchants, the English come in search of labourers, I found words given to the music I heard against the constant run of the wind amongst the rushes and sand dunes. She-oak for the tree with long-scaled needles whistling the wind in a way that made my skin lift. Magpie lark for the two-shriek calling peep in changing hours. Salt paperbark for the crooked tree's groaning wooded cupped fruit. Mangrove, wattle, salt bush. In the months that came afterwards, I learned new words as the congregation did, as we all did, as we all crossed the dusty ticking plains of Adelaide. I placed them next to one another upon the deeper vibration of this country. Galah, cockatoo, lorikeet, kangaroo, wallaby, possum, emu, goanna, quoll. Now, years later, sitting on the lip of this valley, I can make prayer beads of the trees that crown me, the small living things glimpsed if I am still and silent. Red gum, blue gum, quandong, stringy bark. And the birds ever here, ever singing, a liturgy to govern the hours towards gods of cry and shriek and call. Kookaburra, magpie, shrike thrush, wagtail, karawang, crow, bubuk. Scripture may no longer roll off my tongue in smooth certainty, but my mouth is still full of spirit. Holy writ of living things, each one a prayer against the teeth. Nature had always been my whetstone, had always made me keener. And after the congregation, after we all reached the foothills, I felt myself sharpened to life. The landscape on the ascent to the ranges was unlike anything I had ever seen before. I had thought the pine forest back in Kay a place of divinity, but this country was infinitely more sovereign. 
Each morning, while it was yet dark, the birds filled the air with singing so that the sun, when it rose, brought light a symphony. The birds were everywhere, hosts of raucous angels, black-bodied, yellow-topped messengers of shrieking delight, soot-streaked coral masters, feather-fat kookaburras suddenly, alarmingly, proselytizing to the dawn. Even the trees grew in such a way as to welcome the sun to the world. In Prussia, canopies were dense and thick. Forest floors were deeply shadowed. Here was a place of lightness. Leaves dappled thin and shiny, fluttered pink, grey, green. I crushed them in my palm and smelled medicine, healing. Hot, still days dropped branches or bone crack and brought the sounds of bees. Sometimes I smelled honey warming the air. Animals were muscled fur and liquid eyes or scaly thicknesses, tongues darting. All of it, trees and possums and kangaroos and bright beads of ants circling trunks, veered from stillness to flashing movement in an instant. There was energy here, rough softness. Sometimes it rained and when it stopped, the air was perfume, a clean scent of wet leaf and damp sweetness. I wanted to drink that washed summer air. I imagined it tasted of reprieve. My father too was invigorated by everything he saw. He ran his fingers along the ground and filled his nails with soil. God's gifts, he said, smiling at Matthias. Papa's voice in prayer was the first to interrupt the dark. He scaled the ridges with kingdom come strides and remarked aloud upon the extravagance of sunlight, the yawning orange of rock faces, the views that suddenly appeared, paradisical, when the trees fell away to vistas that, that stretched to a shining belt of sea. He wore the hardship of the journey like a hair shirt. The wonder and the deprivation and the physical toll were bringing him closer to God. It was all sanctification. That was wonderful, Hannah. I think if we'd been in a real room, we would all be standing and applauding you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. It has. And um, all you out there, um, some of you have bought the book as well. We'll be posting it to you tomorrow. Uh, it's signed by Hannah. And those of you who haven't, you must go to your local bookshop or readings preferably, uh, and buy a copy, I insist. Uh, thank you so much, Hannah, and I wish the book all the very best and you on whatever your next project may be. Thank you so much. Thank you, all of you. I really appreciate the time. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website. We'll we also find all kinds of bookish recommendations plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs>